0: SQLcast 2 is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com.
1: It's party time! P-A-R-T. Why? Because I gotta!
0: After the
1: credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sounds are doing really well. From Shock Treatment to Jason X to Police academy. This is Sequel cast, and they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel cast, and your hosts have asked that I inform
0: you that the show will now begin. Hello and welcome to SequelCast 2, a podcast looking at films in a franchise, one movie at a time. Um, You know, we just finished looking at a bunch of the uh, Ace Ventura movies and uh, sort of to continue in that Jim Carrey vein, this week we're starting looking at uh, the Mask series with The Mask. Came out in 94. I met Bradley Shurgy with me as Thrasher. There's
1: a snake in my
0: boot. That is right. And, uh... Yeah, The the Mask, we had mentioned this, I think, before in the show several times, but 94 was the year when Jim Carrey really blew up in in popularity. And that same year, you had uh, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, The Mask, and Dumb and Dumber all come out at the same time. Or not the same time, but in the same year.
1: Like being blasted in the face by a triple-barreled comedy shotgun.
0: Right, and uh, Dumb and Dumber was the most uh, successful of those uh, domestically. When I say domestically, I mean United States and Canada, box office gross. As far as internationally, that data isn't, um... Oh, I can't find that out. Let's see.
1: Well, the, the foreign markets weren't as important to American film at the time.
0: Right, and, and you know, I just did a quick uh, check, and, and the mask did do better, um... In the foreign markets, than Dumb and Dumber did, um, but in the United States, Dumb and Dumber did better than The Mask. So, but it was a pretty close call in the in the domestic. Um, so, but yeah. Anyway, you know, these all did very well for Jim Carrey, and The Mask and Dumb and Dumber were both put out by uh, by New Line. And um, in fact, when doing The Mask, uh, you know when they filmed it, Jim Carrey wasn't uh, the superstar he'd become. And they, they got him for, I think around like $500,000.
1: Um, it's probably one of the last times you could get Jim Carrey for cheap.
0: Right. Well then, you know, by the time Dumb and Dumber came around, even though those movies came out within the same year, you know, they filmed it after the mask and, and they could tell he was blowing up to do something. I think he made, um, I think he did it for like 10 million or something like that, you know? So he, yeah, did, uh, did pretty well for himself there. Um, but the mask—it is based on a comic book. I think not a lot of people know that, um, based on the graphic novel by John Arcudi and Doug, Doug uh, Minkey, uh, which is and Dark based Horse based
1: on a concept by uh, Dark Horse Comics co-founder Mike Richardson.
0: Right. And um, when I was doing some research, I read the uh, the original graphic novel, but I didn't get to see um, you know before he had that those four issues. They had kind of short. Bits about the mask by uh, by Richardson. I wasn't able to track those down, but have you ever read
1: those? Or uh, I haven't. I have not read the original Richardson strips. Unfortunately, I've read I've read various mask appearances uh, throughout the years. Unfortunately, my I, my reading of the comic has not been comprehensive.
0: And I was really surprised at just sort of browsing. You know, they haven't done a whole lot with the mask. Here and there, they do some stuff, and they did a crossover with DC comics in which uh the joker gets the mask
1: yeah that was the masks uh currently the mask's final appearance was the was when he met the joker and the joker got all the powers of the mask
0: yeah and uh and there's been some interest in doing a new mask but that hasn't really got off the ground uh, in terms of movies but yeah we'll, we'll talk about that and of course next week we'll look at son of the mask So this film came out July '94, directed by Charles Russell, produced by Bob Engelman, screenplay by Mike Werb, based on a story by Michael Fallon and Mark Verheiden, uh, based on The Mask, as I mentioned, uh, starring Jim Carrey, Cameron Diaz, Amy Yazbek, Peter Reigert, music by Randy Edelman, cinematography by John R. Leonetti, and this was... um, edited by Arthur Coburn, and uh, off a budget of $23 it made $351 million worldwide. Um, and this is notable in that this was a a, a live-action movie that was a comedy that had a lot of CG in it. You know, you, you did have CG starting to creep into um, some science fiction movies and stuff or special effect sequences, but this, you know, having it in a comedy, I thought was pretty novel.
1: Yeah, this this is a post. It's a post Jurassic Park film, but this this is uh, a film where the, where the CGI is being used to do things that are thoroughly unreal, as opposed to trying to make dinosaurs look real.
0: And also, it, it's um, I'm a bit surprised by. There's more um, prosthetics in here than you would expect, and and the way they do the mask for Jim Carrey's face in particular, I think, is really smart. And that they accentuate some of his features, but they give him a lot of room to move around his face.
1: Yeah, he still gets to do all of his old rubber face antics, which definitely helps the film.
0: And uh, I'm afraid, you know, with uh, later in the movie, the bad guy, uh, Dorian gets the mask. And the way he looks is like a vampire from v- Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It looks more like a, a thick uh, mask you'd pull over your face.
1: What of, he looks like someone bad. from Evil Dead 2. Th-
0: that too, yeah. yeah with the... The big brow, and the, the cheeks, and the teeth, and yeah the, and they d- digitally lowered the voice, which I wasn't really fond of. But yeah, let's uh, get into this. Um, when is the first time you've seen The Mask?
1: Uh, I saw this uh, in theaters uh, with my friend Mark. I don't remember if it was opening weekend or the weekend after, but we, we jumped on this film immediately.
0: Yeah, I saw this in theaters with, with friends. you know Especially back then, I would go out with friends to the movies. Every weekend, partially because in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, it gets really hot in the, the summer and going into a movie, among other things, is a good way to cool off. And they weren't quite as expensive uh, back then. And I uh, I recall, you know, before the mask came out, there was a teaser poster that showed, um, you know, Jim Carrey with the doing the hat pose with the yellow outfit and the teeth. And it had a big M. I don't think it even said the full title of The Mask. And it might not have even said Jim Carrey on it. It was sort of a very much a teaser. And I saw that, and I thought it was about Michael Jackson at first, uh, for some reason. <laughs> of the sort of yeah, out, of, out of makeup, phones. he was
1: notorious for having a bright green face.
0: <laughs> yes, that's right. And uh, But no, when I saw it, it was really one of those... Um, I, I liked it more than... Ace Ventura, and I think this is more of a not to crap on Ace Ventura that much, but this this is more of like a real movie, and Jim Carrey gets more of like a, a real performance of a character. Uh, you know, it's a mixture of a real character that turns into a cartoon, as opposed to a character that's sort of acting like a cartoon the whole time.
1: Yeah, he gets to show he gets to show uh, certainly more range than he did with Ace Ventura. Also, uh, much less regrettable material than Ace Ventura. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, I think, you know, holds up... Um, the
1: comedy holds up really better. well. Because I, I have not... I have not seen this since 1995.
0: Really? You know, I I had seen it on the... I think TBS would, would have it on TV a lot. But other than that, it, it had been a while for me, too. And uh, to prep for this, I did read the original Mask um, graphic novel. And was... Uh, I had heard it was more violent than the movie. But holy shit. I mean, like, this would be, like, a Deadpool-style, like... Uh, thing if they did an accurate adaptation of the comic and, and a big part of the comic is the mask keeps on passing from person to person i mean stanley Ipkiss gets killed in the comic um one or two halfway through yeah halfway through and it's really more about the detective um who, who's whose character is in this the mitch Kellaway played by peter Ryder, but um it's about him getting it uh for for quite a bit but even they have you know his girlfriend gets it and uh yeah, this is a very liberal adaptation, and I think they were pretty um, smart in toning this down. Uh, somewhere I, uh, some documentary or something I stumbled upon, uh, oh, I should really look up the guy's name, um, Bob Shea, the, one of the, the founder of New Line Cinema, said when they looked at the mass graphic novel, they snatched up the rights because they thought, oh, we could make this into another Nightmare in Elm Street sort of style series, like an R-rated <laughs> movie about a guy that kills people and has jokes and looking at the comic, I can really sort of see what he met. But when uh, Charles Russell came on board as director, who previously worked for New Line with um, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, The Dream Warriors, he uh, wanted to tone it down and make it more, you know, suit, uh, be more comedic. And uh, I think that was a, a smart choice. However, if you were to remake this and make it more like the graphic novel, that would be something that could work in this post-Deadpool uh, world.
1: Yeah, and that, that's one thing that, and, and despite the fact that they do tone down the mask violence, because in the comic book, when the mask strikes, it's like a, it, the aftermath looks like an abattoir. Uh, but here they pretty much double down on the mask just doing cartoon antics with people. Um, but one thing that they preserve from the comics, which I'm really glad they did, is that the mask isn't really a hero. He's a yes, villain. Right. He's a villain who just so happens to target villains that are worse than him.
0: That's right, and, um, you know, from what I could tell in the first graphic novel, like, only two scenes from that really show up in this movie. And, I mean, you do have some of the characters' names are the same, but they act quite different. And that is uh, the scene where the mask gets revenge and the car repair mechanics is one, and the other is when he uses the uh, the animal balloons to make it into a Tommy gun and shoots them. <laughs> other than that, I mean, this is, you know, pretty much uh original material um yeah i would say this is very loosely based on the comic and it's uh but i mean the, the look of the mask is, is pretty similar with the big teeth and and stuff um and i think this is a smart way to do an adaptation where they're given leeway and they tailor it to the skills of this case of jim carrey and uh i can't imagine anyone else doing this part i was trying to think Just that high-energy manic uh, thing Carrie was doing at the time.
1: Well, apparently at one point, Martin Short and Rick Moranis were up for this part.
0: Martin Short? I could see Rick Moranis. uh, Yeah, I I don't know. I I can see him as Ipkiss.
1: Unless, of course, you were going to switch and Rick Moranis would play Ipkiss and Martin Short would play him as the mask.
0: I could see that. I mean, in fact, in the graphic novel, Ipkiss does look like Rick Moranis quite a bit. So, um... But yeah, but they start uh, doing a very good job of making Stanley Ipkiss in this movie a very uh, sympathetic character.
1: Well, yeah, because he is he is introduced as a as a, a, a sort of a sad sack uh, guy uh, working at a bank uh, who who and I love that they never they never make. Too big of a deal about this, but that he loves old cartoons in his in his his desk at the office. He has a Bugs Bunny comic book. He's got uh he's got animation cells decorating his apartment. He's got a Tex Avery Wolf uh, statuette, and it, it's and and that in itself is really endearing because I I was and still am obsessed with those characters in that era of animation. But the other thing that's really smart is that the way he finds the mask is that. There's a bundle of trash when I guess should we start at the beginning or should we just uh, kind of jump around like the mask would?
0: Well, we couldn't start at the beginning, I think. I, the beginning really feels uh, Roger Ebert said this in his review, but he said it just feels like a, a low budget sort of monster movie you'd see on TV where it's uh, it's under the water.
1: Well yeah we we begin so we get our first shot of uh, of Ed, the improbably named Edge City where this takes place and something that that it didn't occur to me at the time but really uh, struck me now is that even though the mask is this living cartoon character he does live in a heightened reality because our first establishing shot of Edge City is a cityscape that includes visual elements from New York, Chicago, London, uh Los Angeles has these big sewer pipes and, and it is a matte painting. And it's, it's, I think it's a very good idea that the first shot we see in this movie is a blatantly fake matte shot. Cause only matte shots look like that, but it's kind of, Oh, and it, it's pre digital matte. That's the other thing. Mm, yeah. It's, it's not a digital effect. Which there's a lot of really old school things in this movie, like it's filmed like it was made in the '80s, except for the parts that use CGI. But there are some uh, underwater construction workers. They're they're laying down. Uh, they're laying down some pipe uh, going through the harbor. But in the process, but one of the pipes falls and it knocks open this old looking treasure chest that one of the divers found, and it releases this old wooden mask which floats to the surface. And then we immediately jump to uh, to Stanley Ipkiss in the bank.
0: Yeah, and um, I have to say, you know, a performance that gets overlooked in this, what I think, is pretty good. Is Stanley has a friend of the bank, Charlie, played by Richard Jenny, and he he does a good job of um, you know trying to be his friend. He he tries to cheer up his friend by uh, Stanley by taking him to the Coco Bongo Club, and um, I just think it's a really nice. Performance that he's he's kind of sleazy and and screws Stanley over a bit, but he also you know apologizes. He comes off as a as a real sort of person, not not cartoonish, really.
1: Yeah, like he's he's not he's not cruel. He's not you know he's he's not taking advantage of Stanley. They do seem like real people who work together, who are who are friends, and their personalities don't clash. Their divergent personalities complement each other. Mm-hmm. but it's but it's you know it's it's a date it's a day at the bank and uh Cameron diaz uh comes in and there is uh and she she- she comes in like a like a bombshell out of a film noir but she comes into the bank wanting to open an account and Stanley ends up being the agent of the bank who talks with her uh and we get some we get some fun interaction between the two because Cameron Diaz comes off as effortlessly sultry and uh jim carrey you know despite being a a wonderfully gifted uh comedian still acts like an awkward guy in front of her in a very very endearing way but it turns out she's not really there to open an account there's a camera hidden in her handbag she's casing the bank because she's connected to a group of crooks who want to rob the vault
0: yeah i mean she's very much like a, a femme fatale she's in a lot of ways, trying to play both sides, and this is Cameron Diaz's uh, first movie, and she's great in it. Well, it's not it.
1: just a first movie; it's her first acting role. Before this, she had right. done she had done modeling, and she had just she she had auditioned for this part when she was twenty or twenty one. Got the part, and then took acting classes like uh, during pre production, so that she could kind of be up to the level of the film.
0: Yeah, I mean that that she's. This good is pretty extraordinary, but you're right, it looks like effortless and uh, the way Jim Carrey kinda fumbles of around with her is uh, you know, much less over the top than what he would do in say, uh, Batman Forever.
1: Yeah, oh which which we actually I believe we did cover that on the previous uh, sequel. A long cast, time ago, but the sequel yeah. cast one. But it's pretty cool. But we, but we also kind of we go through we go through Stanley's like sad sack day when he leaves when he leaves work. He goes to the mechanics, uh, and you know he he brought his he brought his car in that morning for an oil change. But they've completely dismantled his car, and it's clear that they're going to try to fleece him by charging him for all this extra work that probably doesn't need to be done. And they even get him to sign this work order. And he points out, it's like, wait, this this is blank. What's what's the price going to be? And the guy's like, oh, it's going to be a lot.
0: Yeah, and he goes and uh, they give him a loaner that's just this car that can barely drive. And there's a nice oh, bit yeah. of business where, um, you know, Stanley and, and Charlie are going to the Coco Bongo Club. And, and Charlie gets in but doesn't get Stanley to go in with him. And then meanwhile, Stanley well, sees...
1: oh. Well, they're supposed to go in together, yes. but just Stanley, like he's just son sort of so so goofy. Like there's a half; he doesn't take a step when he needs to, and then the the bouncers, uh, the bouncers keep him out of the club. But yeah, and you know what I love when he's driving the loner car around. When he gives the car to the valet, the hubcap falls off, and he just picks up the hubcap and throws it in the backseat of the car.
0: Yeah, that's a good detail. I mean, also they they bring him back his car after he gets thrown out, and he's trying to act like it's not his car. Oh, uh, but Cameron Diaz, is, Cameron there, Diaz uh, is there going
1: going to work? Because she it turns out she works at the nightclub, and he's trying he's trying to sort of impress her. But he's also been splashed with water <laughs> from a passing car. It's just it's this perfect it's this perfect kind of endearing, embarrassing scene.
0: But the other nice practical gag is he, he's driving it home. And it it breaks down on the bridge, and he he gets out and kicks the car, and it just
1: totally falls apart. Well, the the other cool thing, though, is that it doesn't fall apart all at once. Yes. Bits of it break down in this perfectly timed comedic sequence, and his reactions to it falling apart are golden.
0: I can't imagine how long that must have taken to film to get that right.
1: Oh, yeah. But, um... But this is, this is when we talked about him finding the mask, so he's, he's on the bridge, he's, at, he's, he's close to rock bottom, and he, and this, this is such a perfect character moment that really does establish Stanley as the film's hero, aside from the fact that the camera's following him around so much. When he's slumped against the side of the bridge, he looks over the side, and he thinks he sees a man drowning. Um, mm-hmm. And he runs down into the water to say to you know save this guy, only to find out that no one's drowning. It's just a floating pile of garbage that vaguely looks like a person. <laughs> but in it, he finds he finds the wooden mask and some police see him splashing in the water and his like trying to sort of save face. He's like, "Oh, I'm just looking for my mask. I found it." <laughs> it's just such a goofy moment. But yeah, he goes home. Um, <sighs> Uh, he he has a confrontation with his landlady who is really abusive. I can't imagine why he stays in this building. Uh, he goes home to his apartment. He has an adorable dog named Milo. Uh, he goes to be- and like it's they do this neat kind of little thing where every time he looks at the mask, there's like a shimmer, and you see he wants to put it on, but instead he just goes to bed. He falls asleep to uh, he wants to fall asleep to Tex Avery cartoons, um, but instead. Uh, changes, because the cartoons are too loud, changes into a channel where he sees Ben Stein as a psychiatrist talking about uh, metaphorical masks on a talk show, which I'm glad that comes back later. But we get one of my favorite, strangely enough, one of my favorite moments. Stanley falls asleep and we get a dream sequence where it replays him meeting Cameron Diaz outside of the nightclub, only he's the coolest guy in the world.
0: It's a good moment. I also like uh, when they show Ben Stein uh, talking about his uh, his book about the mask everyone wears. It, it's a drawing of a figure and shadow is a mask, and his his shadow looks just like the mask that Jim Carrey has. Oh yeah, it's in that same and and the look of the mask itself too. I think is nice. Like it's generic enough. It doesn't look you know green or molded to anyone's face or, or cartoony. It just looks like a what could be an ancient mask you might find in a National Geographic documentary.
1: Well, it it looks, it looks credible. It looks like it's, it looks like they took a real medieval wooden mask and heightened it maybe 15%. Just to bring it up to speed with the rest of the movie.
0: Right. But it's, uh, it's good. They could have gone over the top with the mask design and, and they don't. And I think that that works pretty well.
1: But he finally, uh, he finally, uh, you know, puts the mask on and we get, uh, we get the first, the first transformation. And this is when, this is when the CGI effects really kick in, which I'm happy to say for the most part hold up. And I think the reason they hold up is because they're not trying to make cartoon stuff look real. They're letting the cartoon stuff look like a cartoon.
0: Right. Which also happens to work with where CG was at the time with how you know, they were pretty limited with how realistic they can make things work. And by making it more stylized and cartoony, it it holds up, I, I think, pretty well. I mean, you see them use CG uh, the most, not just in the transformation with the clouds and, and everything, but um, he does this kind of Tasmanian Devil spin as he's causing mischief. And that effect isn't great, but um, but you get the idea, and I also like the detail, In his room, he has a Tasmanian devil pillow.
1: Well, I think... I think the transformation. I, th- I think the transformation works because whenever he's doing the whole Tasmanian devil spin, there are lots of physical things in the environment that are affected. He knocks over lamps yes, and tables, yeah, um, newspapers and well, loose papers of all kinds kind of swirl around. But they swirl around in a way that does make it seem. I don't know how they did that, but it makes it seem like his his Tasmanian devil spin is the epicenter.
0: And uh, and to see just the confidence uh, Stanley Ipkiss gets when he puts on the mask, right away, it's. Um, but you could also tell he's a bit. He's going to be a bit dangerous. There's something, you know. Immediately he has that. Smartly he has the confrontation, with um,
1: the uh, landlady. Oh because, yeah, and it's it's yeah. and it's such a great thing because he 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 steps out of the he steps out of the apartment and he keeps doing these neat like physical, like, cartoon walks, and a cartoon alarm clock falls out of his pocket and makes a lot of noise. And he starts trying to hit it with a hammer, tears up the walls. The landlady comes out with a shotgun, um, tries to shoot him, but instead he bounces out of a window like Daffy Duck. And yeah. this is when we get one of the few CGI things that doesn't hold up at all, because he falls out of the window, hits the pavement, and is completely flattened peels himself up off the street and uh, says, you know, look, Ma, I'm wrong the kill. This is the CGI that doesn't work. The CGI is not up to the task of making him look flat.
0: I mean, they're compositing live-action footage of, of his face on top of this, yeah, as you, sort of like cartoon pancake thing, and it just, yeah, it, it's not very convincing. Um, yeah, they but, either but, need to stretch out his face it.
1: more, or just do the face as full CGI.
0: Yeah, but uh, they uh, they don't linger on it, and you from there you, a big concept of uh, the mask is uh, you know he's trying to use it to get to get revenge on on people. Yeah, and he for, goes
1: straight to the mechanics that tried straight, to rip him off.
0: Right, and uh, what I like about that is. You hear him doing a lot of chaos, but they don't show you what he's doing. Probably because if they did, this would get an R rating.
1: Um, well, well, yeah, because the following day, uh, when it's the, when it's the morning, and we see the police examining the mechanic shop, which is covered in graffiti. The letters on the sign out front have been rearranged to say "Ripoff Mechanics." Um, we see the mechanics brought out by paramedics, and they have tailpipes up their butts. Yep. Um, to, s- to see that happen would be truly horrific. It's kind of horrific now.
0: It is, and uh, you know, in the comic, what he does to one of the mechanics is he puts um, some car piece in the guy's neck. So you see the outline of that sticking out of both parts of the guy's neck. No, oh. um, which you that would look pretty. You know, it's more gruesome as, as far as the comic goes. And uh, and and one thing in the comic is uh, Iphicus has a, has a has a list of everyone that he wants to get revenge on, and you see him going to a bunch of people crossing off the list. And I'm I'm glad they they toned that down here in the movie, because it's... I mean, yeah, he gets uh, the mask and gets revenge on some people, but it's also he um, has the relationship with Tina, and he has a lot of different stuff going on. He's more of a character in this, as opposed to the sketch he was in the comic.
1: Yeah, and so... And so uh, Stanley wakes up the next day. He he, he acts kind of hungover. He he doesn't really believe what he remembers from the night before. And we get some pipe laid where he can't. He's going to be late for work. He can't find his keys, and so he asks his dog to find the keys. And Milo mm. and Milo yeah. does it in a way that's not not sickeningly cute, which I'm happy to say. You know, Stanley Stanley shows up for work late. His boss chews him out. Uh, but then he meets, uh, then we meet, uh, he meets Peggy Brandt. Who's this, uh, woman who is trying to be a reporter. And it turns out they have a connection because she used to write an advice column called ask Peggy and Stanley had written a letter to her called nice guys Finish last. And they really bond over that letter. But Peggy is investigating, is investigating the mask. She's investigating what happened at the mechanics place. And, um, and went to Stanley because he's listed as a customer, and Stanley does a very bad job of trying to act like he has no uh, connection. But this is the one thing that doesn't work for me, is that Peggy, and even at the time, so Peggy is was an advice columnist, is now a reporter. She's a reporter because she wants to make more money. Which, even at the time, I think advice syndicated advice columnists make more money than journalists.
0: Yeah, journalists work long hours they typically don't get paid a lot um and uh it is just yeah that's a weird weird decision
1: i mean i just put it down to the heightened reality the rest of the film exists in but like that was the the only thing that serves to do is establish that the character is very much motivated by money uh as opposed to 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 a need to expose the truth um but you know, but anyway her her character her character's laid in there's another uh brief meeting between uh, uh between <clears throat> excuse me between uh Cameron or sorry between uh between Stanley and and Tina we also get we get some more we get some more you know mob stuff uh you know we learn that that there's this uh there's this guy uh Dorian who is organizing the bank robbers uh and he has to, as the ringleader, he has to have an alibi, so he's going to have to be at the Coco Bongo nightclub, which turns out is mob owned, uh, while everyone else is doing, uh, doing the raid. And we finally, uh, we finally, that night, transition into some more masked antics.
0: I would like to point out with Amy Yazbek, she did a, uh, a lot of comedies around this time, including two Mel Brooks movies, uh, Robin Hood, Men in Tights, and Dracula, Dead and Loving
1: It. Oh, that's right. She was made Marion in uh, Men in Tights, wasn't she?
0: Yeah, and uh, she was also in uh, the Problem Child 1 and 2 and House 2, the second story. Um, And she was the uh, wife of the late John Ritter.
1: Oh, wow, I did
0: not know that. So she... But the part she has here, you know, is pretty small. Um...
1: Well, she doesn't do she doesn't do much until the end of the film after after her intro. Right.
0: Now, no, what do you think about the character of Kellaway, the detective?
1: Overall overall that it works. It's, it seems like a performance out of time because he seems he, it's, it almost seems like he's doing a 1950s American detective type character.
0: Yeah, and I could not place like what I'd seen him in before, but then pulling up IMDb, he was Boone in Animal House.
1: Oh yeah, well. Oh, so so something about something about Peggy. Um, this film is very is very fast paced. I feel like there has to be a whole subplot about Peggy, just be- based on the way she shows up, disappears, and comes back later. There had to have been more with her character, and in fact, more with a number of these characters. This fi- this feels like a tight movie, but it feels like a tight movie because it used to be a huge movie that was cut down.
0: Um, yeah, I've heard the the graphic novel adaptation of this movie has some deleted scenes in it, and, um, yeah, I I think you're right. Some of the characters feel a bit thin, um, but of course when, uh, the mask goes to the Coco Bongo, you get the big famous scene where he dances with Tina.
1: Oh, but, uh, before, so, before that we get, uh, so there's a lot of... Accidental. I don't know if it's accidental or not, but there's a lot of catchphrases in this movie. So when Stanley puts on the mask that night, it has my favorite line in the movie where he just looks in the mirror and says, it's party time, P-A-R-T. Why? Because I gotta. That was endlessly quoted by myself and my other friends who never got invited to parties. That's not
0: one of my... Uh... Favorites, I think it's uh, "Somebody Stop Me" is the one that always sticks out in my mind.
1: That's a good one, but yeah, and in fact, this is the other fun. This is we get another bit of comedy because he like he wants to go to the club, but as he, as he says, you can't make the scene if you don't have the green. So we cut to the bank robbery, and all the crooks come out. It's a real diehard situation. They all come out of the vehicle. Uh, fully geared up, it's very efficient. The doctor starts working on the lock of the bank's front door, and they hold on him picking the lock just long enough that when the mask explodes out of that door, <laughs> carrying giant bags of money, uh, it it hits with perfect comic timing, um, and that sets off an alarm. The cops show up. There is a shootout. Uh, and uh, the crooks get away, but the doctor is shot and ends up dying in front of Dorian in their hideout on the top floor of the club. Yeah, and
0: that's a moment I wasn't expecting. I thought it would be, you know, all the the bullets would miss, but there is uh, consequences from uh, the mask showing up there and ruining their plan, and it's uh, it's the motivation for Dorian trying to get that mask uh, guy.
1: Yeah, and, and it's also, it, it creates a good contrast showing that realistic violence with the gunshot wound versus the cartoon violence in the of the mask himself. I think that really helps the film. But, you know, the mask struts into the nightclub in a zoot suit. We get a great limo gag. We get that bit about, you know, oh, I'm not on the list, but my friends are. Perhaps you've heard of them. Jefferson, Jackson.
0: It's a great scene. He just throws shitloads of money into the air, and everyone behind him goes goes crazy.
1: But it's great. He showed the, the thing. The thing that I wonder is, no one's ever like, "What's up with the face?" Everyone just kind of is. Everyone's kind of well, all right. Anytime uh, the mask shows up, but we finally get some Tex Avery antics because um, uh, Peggy. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, No, Tina, I'm sorry, Tina comes out uh, on stage, does a really good rendition of G-Baby, Ain't I Good to You? However, her mouth is blocked by the microphone so much, I feel like they're trying to cover up a lip sync. It it,
0: it is a lip sync. Cameron Diaz does not have a good voice. Uh, You hear her real voice in... um, They did that remake of Annie not that long ago.
1: Yeah, Suzanne Boyd, I believe, is doing the singing for this bit.
0: Yeah, but but it's... uh... The the dubbing great, I think was a smart choice, but her just the dancing between the two of them, and uh, they have a real chemistry going on here.
1: Well, no, they play off of each other uh, really well. It's a really physical. I love that they let uh, they let the mask do all the Tex Avery wolf bits uh, that look that look pretty good. But yeah, I mean the the dance number not only is it is it re- even before. They get CGI involved in the dance number. It's kinetic and ridiculously high energy, but they hold on it. It feels like, I really should have timed it, but it feels like almost th- a three solid minutes of a sustained dance routine, which was even in the 90s incredibly rare, unless it was a cheap joke about dance routines.
0: Yeah, uh, it's... Um... It should should be noted, you know, the the score to this movie, by Randy Edelman, has a lot of sort of swing music and uh, an upbeat to it. But there's also this nice uh, theme he does for the mask itself that's kind of this uh, lyrical, kind of mysterious-sounding
1: theme. But uh, the gangsters who got back from, uh, from the failed heist, they recognize him on the security camera feed, so there is a, there is a uh, a brief showdown in the nightclub there is and we, get, uh, and we get we get some fun some fun comical uh comical moments uh, uh the match does a lot of quick change transformations as uh as the gangsters are shooting at him oh excuse me but uh but in in the end as always he does escape
0: What do you think about um Peter Green playing Dorian Tyrell?
1: I I like him best when he's doing the the mobster stuff. It really is fascinating how dark his uh, how dark his storyline is because we come to find out while he is uh, a highly placed gangster, he's he's not the boss. Like he's still subservient to this other guy, and apparently, Dorian the the Coco Bongo Club is just a mafia nightclub. It's there to be a hideout and to launder money but otherwise to be run like a legitimate business. And that's what Dorian's supposed to do. But Dorian's planning these bank heists on the side and the main mobster he works for doesn't like that. And we get that really f- brutal scene where they make Dorian put a golf tee in his mouth and the, the main mobster you know plays, go- plays golf with his face uh, and is threatening to kill him if he, if he doesn't cease his unauthorized criminal activities and pull out of the nightclub. Um, and it's, it's, it's fascinating that, that they give the villain of this film someone who's worse than him.
0: Yeah, and uh, I'm not sure if that was necessary, but it does, you know, you have the mask getting revenge on people, so it gives him someone to get revenge on as well to get their comeuppance.
1: And I suppose I suppose that works, but I also wonder, is was there another subplot involving this higher-tier mobster that, that got cut?
0: It could be. It does seem a bit strange they um set that up with the animosity between him and his boss and you don't get a whole lot more of that until the end
1: yeah but we but we start to notice some changes uh some changes uh in in stanley ipkis because he shows up for work again and his boss comes to confront him and he chews out his boss uh talking about how you know, the, the the boss at the bank is the son of the owner of the bank, and he goes on this whole thing about how your dad wouldn't appreciate it if he knew you were running this place like a piggy bank and running it into the ground. Also, I know about some things that you probably don't want reported to the IRS. <laughs> like, it's it's neat to see some of the mask rubbing off on Stanley, helping him be more assertive. But this is where we get one beat that doesn't quite work, where um, Tina comes back to the bank to... Because she, she clearly is kind of done with all the criminal stuff going on but she comes to stanley to tell him that she's not going to be opening an account at that bank after all but then they start talking about the mask and it just it seems this this whole scene where she comes back to the bank seems to only exist for plot convenience yeah i don't
0: think that quite works
1: yeah, but Stanley kind of does the whole, well, you know, I know the guy. I could uh, help you. And so they, they agree that he's going to arrange a meeting between her and the mask at Landfill Park.
0: <laughs> in fact, that whole scene reminds me a bit of all the business in the Superman movies where Lois talks to Clark. And he's like, oh, I know Superman. We could work something out.
1: Well, oh, yeah. It's, 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 it is straight up out of that. Uh, but even but even more blatant because Stanley's just kind of waiting in the park. Oh, yeah, he also, before this meeting, he goes to visit Ben Stein, and Ben Stein kind of, like, points out that the mask is probably Scandinavian and might be a representative, might be representative of the god Loki, but then points out, oh, but I'm not an antiquarian. I'm a therapist. <laughs> Why are you in my office?
0: Yeah, it's, um... And I do like he takes off the mask, he puts on the mask in front of him, but because it's daytime, nothing happens. And I really feel bad for Stanley at that point because he really tries to sell the moment that the mask is doing something.
1: Yeah, he tries to spin around, he makes these noises, he does these gyrations. It's good physical comedy.
0: It is, and uh, and Ben Stein at the time is really having kind of a career revival. You know, he was famously in uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and um, he was
1: doing a lot of voice work at the time. He, he has a mm-hmm. recurring uh, guest spot on Duckman. He I think the very next year would go on to do the game show Win Ben Stein's Money.
0: It was a few years later, but yeah, I mean, so that was a big thing. You saw him on uh, on TV a lot. and um, what's what's really interesting is his character is brought back not just for the sequel but also in the animated series, still voiced by Ben Stein.
1: Oh yeah. so. But, yeah, so Stan, Stanley's in the park. Um, Tina does show up. Stanley steps off, goes behind a bush and puts on the mask. It's one of those things where, like, well, if she didn't know he, they were one and the same before, I guess she does now. And he comes out doing this whole French Lethorio routine. And this is a scene that's really weird. Because when, when Tina and the mask dance, there was a real connection between them. But in this scene where the mask is doing his whole French uh, lover bit they she keeps going back and forth between being really turned on and really horrified by him it's it's really strange it's it's like it's almost like they filmed two different versions of this scene the comedy version and a horror version and kept cutting between the two he also acts more like Pepe Le Pew well that, oh yeah that's clearly what they're channeling yeah, and it, it,
0: it, it's he's he's it on too thick. I think that's where where it comes creepy. Um,
1: yeah, and, and oh god, all the all the 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 French, all the French puns.
0: Yes. Je the door
1: or je the window. I don't care. Mm-hmm.
0: And him, you know, stretching all over him with the flower in the mouth. It is. Uh,
1: yeah, but the, but the, the mob, but the mob shows up. He goes on the, uh, the mob. Oh no, the, not the mob. The, uh, the detectives show up cause they've been tailing Stanley. Uh, he runs out of the landfill park. He nails the door up in a great manic scene. Uh, but then we get kind of the big set piece of of this movie number. Cause when he's sort of catching his breath at the entrance to landfill park, he is surrounded by cops and the way he gets out of this is the scene that I think everybody remembers where he gre- he he yes. generates maracas and he leads all of the city's police in a rendition of the Desi Arnaz uh, hit single, Cuban Pete.
0: Right. In fact, I fell down a bit of a, a rabbit hole with uh, Cuban Pete. Um, and I, it's actually a much older number than uh, I thought. It's written in 1936 by... Joseph Norman, a, a British composer under the nom de plume, Jose Norman. And uh-huh. uh, one of the earliest recordings of it was by Louis Armstrong in 1937.
1: Um, I, I have heard that version. It's really
0: good. It is. It's more uh, you know big band than uh, Cuban sounding, but Tito Puente did a version of it. But yeah, Desi Arnaz in an episode of I Love Lucy um, is a, a pretty famous version. And in, when he does it on that show, uh, the, the big gag is uh, he does it straight and then Lucy comes up and does a few verses. um, Yeah, they make um, it a duet. Yeah, and they make it a duet, sort of a takeoff on it. And she chews gums if she does it. Uh, I was really interested in finding, uh, from the very first season of Saturday Night Live, Desi Arnaz was a guest, and he performed Cuban Pete for the music number. Oh, that's right. With his son on the bongos.
1: Desi Arnaz Jr.? Yes. Oh, Cool.
0: So it's it's pretty. I mean, he's pretty old at that point, but he can uh, he does the less dancing than on the Lucy show. But it it was it's kind of a sweet number to see because I have never seen Desi Arnaz that old before. I just always think of him on the I Love Lucy show in black and white.
1: Yeah, and this this is. I, I almost kind of wish they had done the duet version because I think it would have been really fun to have Tina involved in the song doing the Susie Sweet part that was done for uh, Lucille Ball. But mm. this – they really commit – this is like another protracted musical number and there's lots of choreography. Um, they, it turns into a swing number. You get a lot of uh, Jim Carrey scatting. Um but, and this also kind of establishes that as long as the mask is doing a bit, he can sort of mind control people and pull them into the bit. But it's also, it's one of those powers where it only kicks in if the gag really demands it. Because there have been plenty of other opportunities when it probably would have been to his advantage to mind control people and suck them into the antic. But this is the only time where the story really turns on it.
0: Yeah, Jim Carrey does a good job with the vocals on the number. It's, um... It's a real highlight of the movie, and it's, uh, it's no surprise it was used in the, the trailers. And the soundtrack even has a version of the track that um, was almost more of a dance mix, where they put in clips of dialogue, cut in there, and make it more up-tempo.
1: We what, at the time, Comedy Central had a progr- an experimental programming block where they would show, for lack of a better term, comedy music videos for about a half hour, And in the rotate, they would usually have a Weird Al video, something pulled from an old movie, but it would always include the music video for this version of Cuban Pete.
0: Right. Um, Speaking of which, uh, I'm looking at the time. We have to wrap up pretty soon here,
1: or? Oh, yeah. So, Yeah. yeah. So, Stanley, you know, takes off the mask, gets picked up by Peggy. Then it turns out Peggy has been bribed by the mobsters, uh, who, uh... Take the, mat, the mask from Stanley Turn Stanley over to the cops Dorian now becomes an evil mask uh, Stanley escapes from the cops So Milo gets out of Stanley's apartment uh, he, he, he escapes by getting Milo to jump up into his cell Then does the get the keys trick on the guard Lots, lots of stuff goes on But there's a big charity function at the Coco Bongo Club um, Stanley goes there to get the mask back There's all sorts of crazy shit. Cameron Diaz. I like that Cameron Diaz outsmarts Dorian by saying, well, before you kill me, I want one last kiss, but I want it from the real Dorian. So Dorian Mm -hmm. takes, playing to his ego, Dorian takes off the mask, kicks in between, you know, Milo, uh, sorry, uh, Tina kicks the mask away. Um, Instead of Stanley getting it, Stanley's dog gets it, and we get a lot of mutley antics. And I remember... This film was in movie theaters for quite a while, and I remember when they tried to kind of uh, boost ticket sales during the end of its run, there was a new commercial cut for it, where the whole premise of the commercial was, you've seen what happens when Stanley Ipkiss gets the mask, but did you see what happens when his dog gets it? And it's all these dog clips. And it's as if we hadn't already seen that if we saw the movie. But eventually stanley does get the mask back um there's all there's a lot of shenanigans um at the nightclub but i like that the mask diffuses the situation in a very cartoony way he swallows the bomb that's supposed to blow the club up uh which strangely enough doesn't lead to a fart joke i kept expecting there to be a fart joke after the bomb blows up in his stomach but but dorian is defeated by the mask painting a handle Uh, on the side of a fountain and when Dorian runs through the fountain he pulls the handle and and, uh, Dorian just gets flushed away Um, so that's the climax Dorian gets framed for all the mask crimes because they leave a green rubber mask behind at the scene which I think that's the William Shatner mask from the Halloween movies but painted green It, it could be But, you know, in the end, Stanley and his buddy and uh, Tina, they they drive out to the bridge and they decide they're just going to get rid of the mask. They throw it in the water. Uh, But Stanley's buddy jumps into the water uh, to try to get it. Uh, And that's what we that's what we end on. We end on a freeze frame kiss as in the as in the background. Stanley's friend tries to retrieve the mask for himself.
0: Yeah, kind of a kind of a goofy ending. I don't know if that point was needed. And the stuff with the dog you were mentioning near the end—that's uh, some of the CG that isn't so great either. Um, yeah, the
1: fur texture they put on it, the, it is abysmal.
0: Right, and um, interesting bit of trivia here. Then we can move on to the other segments of the show. I know we got to wrap things up. Um, Nintendo Power did a contest where the grand prize was uh,
1: a cameo and a mask. A cameo. Seal.
0: In the mask too and in uh, way back in um actually no this is only a few years ago that's surprising tony ponce did an article for destructoid where they tracked down the guy that won that contest and, oh yeah uh, it was nathan Runk. and what happened was he uh you know the mask 2 was going to be a real thing and jim carrey was contracted to do it and jim carrey turned it down because he doesn't really do sequels and wanted to do other stuff but in the meantime, they kept on, you know, giving them, uh, like a mask, crew jacket. They gave them some free Super Nintendo games, and oh. uh, and this contest was from '95, and on uh, on '96, you know, almost like a year later, they uh, said, you know, it looks like this isn't going to happen. Why don't we just give you, uh, if you want, we can give you the cash value. Uh, of what that would be what a, what it would be to go to the set of the mask too which was five thousand dollars and huh. uh and he, and he took the money the other option was to wait forever and then they were wondering like eventually the son of the bass came out would nintendo power have uh, honored that if he had not taken the money like i would think no i don't even know if it was
1: even a magazine still by that point um Oh no, it would have been because like N- Nintendo Nintendo Power is uh, still, I believe it's still published.
0: Nope.
1: Oh, that must be recent then, because I've got I've got like an issue from like two or three years ago. The
0: um, last issue is twenty twelve.
1: Huh. Then the issue I've got must have been a special thing. It was when that it was when that one developer died. Maybe that was like a special printing.
0: I think it might have been a special, like, one-off uh, issue. Um, oddly enough, I didn't know this, in the end of 2017, Nintendo Power is now uh, the title of a podcast from Nintendo. Huh. So, who knows?
1: But, I mean, what what's your what's your overall impression of The Mask? Uh... I, I, I
0: really like it. You know, I would give a sequel, yes. Uh, it, it, it holds up. Uh, Jim Carrey gets to do some acting, you know, some... Real acting that's not not cartoonish, not real acting. Uh, uh, excuse me, uh, more dramatic acting. And um, Cameron Diaz is great, and uh, most of the CG works. The Cuban Pete number is good. Um, I I'd, I'd highly recommend it, but I also would recommend trying to track down the original graphic novel just to see how different this movie could have been.
1: Yeah, I, I'm going to give this. I'm going to give this a a sequel, yes, as well. And I really am shocked. We still we didn't get a sequel. Like, I feel like within two years, they could have just done another movie without Jim Carrey in, in the role. I'm, I'm shocked that this wasn't a full-on franchise to rival, uh, to rival Warner Brothers Batman.
0: Yeah, yeah you think and they would I'm, have done something
1: faster. And I don't remember how, how big this movie was. When The Mask premiered on network television, Fox had got the exclusive rights to it. And it was so big... That during the run-up to it premiering, they had this thing on the network where all of their shows, I think except The Simpsons because they outright refused, they took a scene and they inserted CGI eyes bugging out of the main characters' heads. There's like there's an early episode of Mad TV where inexplicably throughout the episode, people do wild takes with big CGI eyes, and this all tied into some sort of contest they were doing to tie into the premiere.
0: How strange, interesting. yeah, um, a pretty good movie. Uh, what would you do for uh, pitch a sequel?
1: I mean the the obvious thing is that you let uh, you let uh, Stanley's friend, a uh, libidinous friend get the mask, but I don't want to do that. I want to do a sequel where instead, Tina gets the mask and she turns into a Betty Boop sort of half Betty Boop, half Jessica Rabbit cartoon character who and we double down on the musical numbers since she's already a musician. We have her do all sorts of crazy musical numbers as she fights crime slash gets revenge because it turns out she she witnessed a lot of crimes when she was working with the mob. And the extended mob wants to take her down before she can turn state's evidence. So this is how she's protecting herself, is with the mask. And also trying to not let Stanley know that she's got the mask. She's trying to keep that secret. So Stanley will be a part of this film. But um, what's going to end up happening, simply because people are going to want to see it, at the climax of the movie, the mask gets split in half. And so she gets half. And Stanley gets half, so we mm. get a male mask and a female mask teaming up, uh, and it's this just crazy thing with them chasing people around with hammers and using a combination of libido and sex appeal to take down a whole huge criminal organization. Uh, but in the in the end, you know, they'll take the mask off, they'll they'll reunite it, and they'll try to get rid of it again. But we'll see how successful they are. Uh, and we'll call that Masks 2, because at one point there's two of them, um, Cartoon Boogaloo.
0: Okay. I think if I was to do, pitch a sequel, I would do it with uh, the mask. Um, you know, they mentioned it's, it's for an old, ancient mask. I would kind of go back to the beginning and have the mask show oh. up on a Viking warship. <laughs> and, and have it be a, a weird combination of a a Viking sort of men on on the ocean, sort of a mutiny story combined with the mask, and have much more of the mask kind of getting stolen and being a prized possession uh, from person to person. And I think it would end with everyone on this Viking ship uh, dying, but the mask would survive as it, you know, goes back into the ocean. Hmm. And it would be called... Uh, viking mask i don't know
1: just 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 viking mask yeah sure mask the Viking. i don't
0: know um well yeah so um got a question for you thrasher what you're watching
1: Ooh, well i can tell you what i've been watching i i have watched a lot of things uh but i realized we're running long so i'm just gonna say i did finally see black panther
0: and what did you think of it
1: that was a That was a really good movie uh, it, it was the, every character had something to do. every character had an arc which I was impressed with like even even the side characters kind of came out transformed by the end of the film, um, as much as I like the visuals uh, in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two and Thor Ragnarok. Uh, Black Panther may very well be the most overall beautiful film uh, that Marvel has done so far. It has a wonderful sense of design and color, especially with all the, the various African uh, influences going going down from from straight-up real African tribal influences to modern Afropop influences. It really is amazing. Um, but it also, watching this movie, uh, something occurred to me. Uh, and that's have you have you noticed that every time a Marvel movie comes out, there are always multiple articles saying movie X solves Marvel's villain problem. But yeah. this has been going on since the first Thor. Has it been going on that long? Jeez. Yes, it has. Since the first Thor. Wow. Uh, I, I will look back. There might even be more. There may be one predating that. But the 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 the, th- the line is always the villain in this movie fixes Marvel's villain problem. Which makes me wonder: Is there a problem if every movie fixes it? Is it possible that they've all had good villains? We just, for some reason, ref- refuse to recognize that.
0: Not only that, but is it a problem if these movies are so successful they've pumped out nearly 20 of them over the course of a decade?
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, that's that's a big deal, too. Right? You know? it has, it's not I, holding them back at the box office. That's
0: pretty amazing. You know, I was in the sort of transition to my thing. I, I saw Ready Player One in the theater. Oh, how and, was that? Uh, I'll, I'll get into it in a minute, but um, you know, it made me think of what you were saying. It, it did a little featurette before the movie. I showed up early, like I said, tend to to get a good seat. And they talked about Avengers, uh, Infinity War, the third one coming out. And they made a big deal about this is the 10th anniversary of Marvel doing the movies. And I thought, wow, has it really been 10 years? Yeah, I guess it has. That movie is going to be jam-packed with characters. I don't know how they're going to do it. But yeah, Ready Player One. Um, So I read the book, and the book was bad, and the movie was just okay. I I saw it (laughs) more because I was curious to see Spielberg do this sort of populist entertainment I haven't seen him do in a while. I mean, I really want to think about it, I don't think I've seen a Steven Spielberg movie in the theater since Minority Report. It's really been a really? while. Really? Yeah, he's just done a lot of um, historical dramas and stuff I couldn't you know, get around to watching in the theater. And this one, I, I, I was glad I did, because the spectacle on the big screen is really something. People have made uh, comparisons to Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Uh, I would say the difference is, in Roger Rabbit, it's beloved characters that you, you typically get moments with those characters. But um, to make a comparison, you remember at the very end of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, you have like a shitload of characters all on the screen? Oh, yeah. Most of the appearances from characters are like that in Ready Player One. Huh. Where there's so much people walking around on the sides of the screen and stuff, you don't get to really take it in and appreciate. Um and the movie's pretty heavy with references. Not the book was really bad about it because they would go into like five-page Wikipedia rants on um, why Rush is the best band of all time or something like that.
1: <laughs> now, were they being ironic? No,
0: that's the, the, the book. Okay. Is so, yeah, um, but one thing that is worth um, checking out, even if you never have any interest in watching the movie. I wouldn't necessarily recommend renting the movie. I don't recommend seeing it at the theater necessarily, but, um, there is a podcast by, um, oh, who is it? Yeah. There, there's a podcast by Connor Listowska and Michael J. Nelson called 372 pages. We'll never get back.
1: Oh yeah. I keep meaning to check that out. How was that?
0: Very good, and uh, they, I don't know if it's just they'll stop it and start it again, but they did it for Ernest Cline's book, Ready Player One, and then they also did it for his follow-up book. It's not a sequel, it's just an, another book in the same vein called Armada. And um, whether they will keep on doing it, I'm not really sure, but it's uh, its a pretty funny discussion. They point out why a lot of the writing is bad and um, and what works and what doesn't. And uh, I, I like with Ready Player One, they streamlined the movie's uh, story quite a bit. But uh, there is some real clunkers in the dialogue.
1: Hmm.
0: Including, like, uh... oh, then I may have to look up the line. Um. There's a line, it's something like, uh, it takes a gamer to know a hater, or like, something that terrible. Um, Yeah. Um, So I don't, if you can get in to see it for cheap, the spectacle of it might be worth it alone, but it's, yeah, it's about what I thought it was. It was okay, and I was expecting bad, so. That's Ready Player One. I can't say that much more about it. So next week, we're going to be talking about Son of the Mask, the not-very-well-received sequel to The Mask. That came out over a decade after the original. It was starring uh, Jamie Kennedy. From the
1: experiment of the same name.
0: Yeah, that's right, the candid camera type show. Um, Alright, so for Sequel Cast 2, this is Matt.
1: And this is Thrasher. Same. P A R T Y. Because I,
0: gotta. Oh, we not sc- gonna do the. Yeah, let's do that scene. There's this thing. Oh yeah, that. yeah. And then I know you gotta go. Um. <laughs> what what part do you want to do? I I really want to do the mask. Okay, do the mask. Um. Okay. So this is a scene where Dorian and the mask are, are talking. I'll do the narration. It's their first.
1: It's their first confrontation.
0: First confrontation, and uh, Dorian's like, "Okay, Twinkle Toes, I want to know where my money is, and I want to know right now."
1: Okay. Math sits on a stool and takes out an adding machine. <laughs> You've got seventeen point five T bills amortized over the fiscal year, eight percent in stocks and bonds. Carry the nine divided by the gross national product. Fortunately for you, funeral bouquets are deductible. Ice this deadbeat. And then there's lots of gunplay.
0: Pew pew pew.